Let's take our Bibles and let's go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you do not have sermon notes, raise your hand. The ushers will move through the auditorium. They'll give those to you so that you can follow along a little bit better. Don't be panicked by all of the nine or ten points that are listed. I don't even plan to get through it all this morning. We'll pick it up more this evening. What I'm doing this series is one that I've been putting off, as I said last week, I've been putting off for about two years, wanting to speak on a, on a series of death and dying, a series of dealing with death. And I've been putting it off because it seems like every month, every couple months, somebody in our church family over the last year, year and a half, has had that incident. We have had so many funerals over the last couple years. We've had all these different instances of illness. We even have some who are under hospice care right now, and so in the next months we're going to have some more. And so I've been putting it off and waiting, and there's just no good time. And I feel now that I am doing you a disservice in not attacking going through and addressing this topic. And I got to tell you, I am so excited for the study that I was able to do this week. It was so encouraging. I know I won't get through everything, and if I get through tonight even, it'll be a miracle as well. We started last week in talking on this series. We went to the Gospel of John. We were in John 11, and we started off with that idea of John, what he says there, what Jesus teaches about death and dying. It's a story that many of you are familiar with. It's a family that is facing a serious situation, a great trial. The brother dies. Mary and Martha are just, they're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. Jesus had been beckoned to come and help, but he delays several days. When he comes, he starts speaking to them, and he starts talking to Martha, and he deals with, in John chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, he deals with the idea is not to be grieving. Why? Your brother shall rise again. And he talks about all who believe in me, they shall rise again. They shall be resurrected, and though they are dead, they shall be alive, and they will remain alive. He is giving her help and hope in the middle of a trial that is so grave and so serious by helping her to focus on eternity, focusing on the future and what's ahead. John 14, he does the same thing. He's with his disciples that evening. He is the one that's going to die in a few hours. They are going to be absolutely beside themselves <coughs> what they should do. How should they handle this loss of their master, the one that they have given up everything? They've given up their businesses. They've, they've left their family for weeks at a stretch, and they're following him, and all of a sudden he's announcing, I'm going to die. One of you is going to betray me, and they have no idea. This is one of the greatest trials. And he says in John chapter 14, starting with verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. He repeats that later in the same chapter, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, with this trial and this difficulty, don't let your hearts be pulled apart. But some of you know exactly what that's like. Some of you know that when you faced a serious trial, whether it be a job loss, uh, an illness that entered into your home, a loss of some dear friend, or a loss of a family member, you know what it's like to have your heart pulled apart. You know what it's like when all of a sudden your world is turned upside down. And so he deals with the disciples in John 14 trying to help them to have peace in their heart, to have stability in the midst of this great, great trial. And when he talks to them, he talks once again about the future hope. This time he doesn't use the word resurrection, but this time he talks about heaven. Going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so I learned from the text that what he's doing is Jesus is helping people through their greatest trials and their most difficult moments by pointing them to the future, by helping them to see what's ahead, to realize, as we talked about last week, that these trials and these troubles, they're temporary. Oh, they feel like they are lasting for eternity, but in light of eternity, they are only temporary. In light of reality of our living and what we're gonna, what's going to happen and what's on the horizon, these are just a short time. They are but the vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. This is the fog that we see early in the morning. And there's going to be that brilliant daylight later on in the, as the day comes. And he's saying, our great day of daylight is ahead of us. And he's trying to help his disciples, the ones he loves dearly, to handle the difficulties by pointing them to the future. And so what I'd like to do over this series, and especially today and tonight and possibly next Sunday, is point to the future. Get our minds focused. Focused on this one thought that he writes about, that he talks about, about heaven, what's ahead, and what he, what he wants 
for us and what He has planned for us. And I want to give our attention this morning, focusing in John chapter 14, on what does He teach us in these few verses where He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. From those simple verses, I want to share with you an abundance of biblical truth that talks about this future. This, this abundance of truth that should provide comfort, that should provide hope. And unfortunately, there are some in this room, there are some who have heard similar messages that they haven't found comfort. They haven't gotten the hope. Why is that? Why is it that some people who hear about heaven, it really doesn't transform, it doesn't speak to them, it doesn't cause an enthusiasm and excitement? I was thinking about what possible reasons. If you talk about heaven, why wouldn't somebody get excited? Well, maybe it's because they don't believe in heaven. Maybe they deny, and usually it starts this way, I deny a hell because hell sounds bad, but if you deny hell and need to be consistent, you need to also deny heaven. You can't deny one without the other. And so people often end up in some of these, these great uh, celebrities of our society. They talk about it. They mention that they don't believe that there's an afterlife, that this is all there is. And if somebody believes that, I can understand why some live the way they do if this is it. And it's unfortunate for them. Even some of those who claim to be great scholars, they deny because they can't scientifically prove a heaven. They can't scientifically measure it. They can't get, the, get their, uh, their minds around this idea that there could be another world around us. Or, like Asimov says here, maybe their concept of heaven is so shallow that they don't even desire it. And I think that's true of a lot of people. I think there are a lot of individuals that have a really poor concept of heaven, including believers. That there are a lot of believers that when they think about heaven, it doesn't thrill their heart, it doesn't excite them. It sounds like to them when they hear about it, like going and getting root canal. That's so exciting. To be in heaven forever and ever, sitting around doing nothing. Here, let me, let me share with you some thoughts that are stated, that are written about, that, that people have shared, born-again believers have shared, such as this individual. A pastor once confessed, this author writes, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why? I can't stand the thought of endless tedium, to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place where we do nothing. Another person wrote this. They said, when I was five years old, I was told, and this woman is Christian since she was that age, and she's serving the Lord in the capacity of a you know, wife to a youth pastor. She says, a teacher in our Christian school told me that when we go to heaven, we will forget everything about this life, and we won't know anyone or anything from this earth. I was so terrified as a child of five years old of dying and never knowing my parents. I never told anybody different about, about this, and nobody ever told me anything different. It's been really hard for me to advance my Christian walk because of the fear of heaven and an eternal life that's one that I see as loneliness. This person wrote, Nearly every Christian I've spoken to says that their idea of eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of a never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. Our heart sinks. Forever and ever? That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life can provide for satisfaction. <laughs> we read even in novels. Do you remember the story that you read as a child, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer? Do you remember the conversation that's in one of those books where Huck Finn is talking and he's, he's relaying that he had a conversation with the woman, the spinster who took him in this Miss Watson, and she's telling him about, oh, you be a good boy, you're going to be able to go to this land of glory. And he said, what's that all about? She explained, oh, you will learn to play the harp and you will strum it and we will sing songs at the feet of Jesus forever and ever and we will just be rejoicing by sitting there with our white robes and watching Jesus. Jesus. To him, he said, and as the story goes along, as Mark Twain puts it, he's relaying to a friend, he said, that didn't sound like much fun to me. I asked if my friend Tom Sawyer would be there. Oh, no. Oh, no. Bad boys like him won't be there. Huck Finn concludes, I got out of there. 
I want to be where Tom Sawyer is, where there's fun. I don't want to be in church forever and ever and ever. That is a reality that a lot of us think that heaven is like. We have the impression that heaven is, is going to be stifling. That heaven is going to be a place of holiness and bliss, but we're going to have to smile like we do at church when we don't feel like smiling. I mean, some of you have done this, haven't you? You come to church and you don't feel like being here? Nobody's going to say yes to that one? <laughs> Let's be honest. There's a lot of times we come here, we don't feel like being here. We don't feel like singing. Or am I the only one? <laughs> and I'm preaching. Yeah. And I, you know, do we have those moments and we say, oh yeah, great, that's what heaven's going to be like. We're going to come and we're going to enjoy it. It's going to be so fun. We're going to have a great time for all eternity. <laughs> right? If we don't understand what heaven's like, why would we share the good news with somebody if we don't think it's so great? If we don't understand what heaven's like, what comfort does it give us when we think about where are our loved ones? What are they experiencing? If we don't express to our kids what heaven is really like, why would they want to go there? Why would they want to set their affections on high if they think it is something that is a drain, a drudgery? And it's not. It's absolutely not. But where do these wrong ideas of heaven come from? I, you know, I dare say it comes from misinformation. Do you think that sometimes people get their impression of heaven from TV? And Hollywood has all the answers. Okay. Do you think that there is ever misinformation on the internet about heaven? I mean, is there, what, what's the latest term? Fake news? Okay. Is there fake news being spread about heaven? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And some people don't go to the right source. In fact, I think this is a major problem for a lot of us. Lack of Bible study. I dare say that there's a lot of people in this room who have never picked up a book, a good theological book, and read one book that talks only about heaven. That you've never made it a point of study. I've I got to tell you seriously, in all the studies that I've done, in Bible college and seminary, this is the pattern of every time I took a course on Revelation. We spent so much time going through the book of Revelation on chapters 4 through 19 and 20. We spent so much information answering all those important questions about the mark of the beast, about your know, antichrist, about the vials and the judgments, and that by the end of the semester there was no time to deal with chapters 21 and 22, which is heaven. You know what the irony of it is? We're not even going to be here during the tribulation. We spend more time studying that doesn't apply to us than we do study the eternity that does apply to us. Do you want to know a real shame? Pick up most theological books, systematic theologies. Those are the ideas of one book that has all the different theologies in. You will find that there is very little page numbers wise, if you put it all together, very little in most systematics on heaven compared to hell. And we're not going to be in hell. But there's more time spent by theologians talking about hell, talking about other things, talking about the past more than our future. But where do we spend the bulk of our, of our existence? In heaven. But we do little study on it. We do little research on it. We get some, some information that, that's just... Let me see if I can illustrate. Lately, there's been a lot of programs on going to Mars, right? Some, some specials that they put out, and there's a lot of these shows about, you know, you know, the Martian and different people being stranded there and stuff like that. Let's pretend... Let's pretend we are part of NASA and we are planning on a mission to Mars. You are one of the select astronauts that you have gotten together. You have spent the last five years preparing yourself for the mission to Mars. You have done you know, all the laboring, all, all the research. You know exactly what to push, what buttons, when, at what time. You know the ship that's going to get you there. You've got it all down pat. You're at your news conference the night before and they ask you the question, you know, here's the big questions. You know, what about how you feel? Are you nervous? What are you going to miss? Da, da, da. They ask you all the questions. And then they say, what do you think you'll find on Mars? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? We, we've never talked about it. You mean in all five years? No, we, we, just, we just talked about how to get there. 
We just talked about running the ship, but we've never spent any time. I, I don't know anything about the planet. Do you know if it's cold, it's hot? No, we never talked about it. We never spent any time researching. You, are you serious? You're going on such a long journey and you don't even know what color it is? You don't know what the temperature is? You have no idea what to expect at all? No, we just didn't think it was important. You and I would say Nassau's done. We would say you and I would be foolish and if it was, some, one of, if it was somebody that we knew and we had control, we'd say, you're not going on that trip. Yeah. You're going to a place, you know, when, when my kids picked college, I wanted them to know what was there at the college. I wanted them to know when we, when we go and say, okay, we're going to go on vacation, I want kind of an idea what's ahead, you know, what to plan for. Heaven is ahead of us. How much do you know about heaven? How much do you know about it? I think there's a, there's a reason why some of us are confused about heaven. And to be fair, Maybe, maybe it's because of as we approach the Bible, we get confused with the terminology. You do realize that when the Bible talks about heaven, that it talks about different heavens. There, there's the heaven that we see, the atmosphere around us. There's the heaven, the solar system, you know, the, the cosmos. There's the heaven where God resides. Right away, right there are different terms for heaven. We're talking this morning not about, you know, the stratosphere. We're not talking about space. We're talking about where God resides, where our loved ones who have passed, where they have gone. We're talking about where we will spend eternity. Now, with that, does the Bible use different terms? Uh, yeah. It says heaven. It says kingdom. It says paradise. It says Abraham's bosom. It says it's a city. It says it's a country. It says that there's the new earth. Now, which one is it? The answer is yes. Okay. It's all of them. Now, when you put it all together, here's what you get down to. You get down to that when you talk about this heaven where God and the saints will reside together, there could be and there is different phases or places that have a commonality. Let me see if I can explain it this way. There's a story that's given in Luke 16. I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a true story because he uses real names. It, Jesus is speaking and he tells about a rich man and Lazarus. He says that the rich man is faring sumptuously. Lazarus is a poor man, a beggar who sits at the gate. They both have a common experience. What happens to them both suddenly? They die. It says the rich man ends up in hell. It says Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom. Now, this is Jesus telling the account and explaining what happens at this moment of history. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The appearance and the terms that he uses, this is my understanding of it, is that he talks about Sheol, sometimes translated Hades or hell, sometimes translated the grave, but it's basically a place of the dead. The indication from what he's saying is it's below. How can it be in the center of the earth? I don't understand all these things. I just know what the scriptures indicates. That heaven is above, hell is below. And so what you have is below in that dimension of hell within the earth, you have this, this area that as you go through the passage, it describes it this way. It describes it basically Abraham's bosom and hell, a place of, of fire and flames. In the theology, we would call upper and lower Sheol, or the place of the abode of the dead, the place where the Old Testament saints would have gone. They would have gone one place, or Old Testament peoples would have gone one place to the other. The saints would have gone to Abraham's bosom, or as Jesus calls it later when he's talking to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me and Okay, another term for it. And he says, the other place, there they are, it's hell. As you and I understand hell, a place of torment and terrible, terrible time. There's a great chasm between the two. He says that there is a gulf between the two that nobody can cross as Jesus relays the story. He talks and explains that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. He is comforted. He is being cared for. It's the place that we would say it's heaven-like. Peace, comfort. Um, you know, there's an absence of pain. There's no longer any of the suffering that goes about. But the lower place he describes as torments. The rich man is there in torments, plural. The rich man calls out, give me just a drop of water on my finger that I may cool my tongue. It is so severe he wants just a drop. He calls out, send somebody to warn my brothers lest they what? 
They come here and be with me in this hell place, in this terrible place. Well, the Bible goes on and gives us more information. It says that Jesus, in the time that he died on the cross and before he resurrected, that he went and spoke to the spirits that were in prison, the spirits that were in a confined area. That means Jesus went to this region and remember that in that story of Luke 16, they were able to talk across this chasm. They were able to communicate Abraham to the rich man, the rich man back. Well, Jesus goes to this upper chamber, this upper, upper area where the souls are there during that period of time. He speaks. He preaches to those that are in confinement. Then the Bible says, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, it says, when Jesus ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. The idea is he led those who were in a confined area to another area is he ascended up into heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he took those saints who were in paradise or Abraham's bosom up to heaven, the heaven that we talk about, the place where he says, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. That is still the operational heaven as we know today. That is what's described in John 14. That is where the loved ones that we have done funerals for, the loved ones that you have lost over, these, over your lifetime who are born again, that's where they are going to that heaven, the current heaven, the heaven that we would say is we're going to be with Christ for eternity, the heaven that, that we will be with him, but this isn't going, to be, isn't going to stay where, how do I want to phrase that? This isn't where we are going to stay for all eternity. We go to this heaven and we are there for a lengthy period of time, whatever it is from your death until Jesus Christ brings this heaven down to the earth. In theology, we call the current heaven the intermediate heaven. It is temporary. It is a place that has an eternal value, but it is the temporary abiding place for saints. In that, in that I mean this. There is coming a day in the future where according to Revelation chapters 21 and then well, 21 in the first few verses, Jesus Christ, when he comes back to the earth at the end of the tribulation, he is going to bring his capital and set it up on earth. Jerusalem will be his capital. He is going to rule and reign from planet earth. He will bring all of his saints from all the ages and they will get their resurrected bodies. They will live with him and they will rule with him for a thousand years upon this earth. And there will be a time where there will be no sin upon this earth. There will be no, the, the disease will be put aside and it's going to be heaven-like. But at the end of that thousand years, there's going to be a rebellion. And then Jesus Christ will, will take care of those who rebel against him and put that down. But after that, he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and new earth will be when he brings everything that we know as heaven, the, the city that he is building, will come to the new earth and it will be combined, the new heaven, the new earth, and that will be the eternal heaven. That's where we will live in a million years from now. We will be with him and we will exist forever and ever. You see what you've got. In theological terms, you have heaven referring to different, different places different phases, but they're all the same. Heaven is wherever Jesus Christ is living with his saints. Heaven always has the characteristics of holiness and comfort and peace, good health, no pain. Heaven has the idea that those who are there will never will never be cast into eternity and judged once they've entered the heaven that we know today. They are going to be with Christ forever and ever and ever and have eternal life with him. So when we talk heaven, sometimes there's confusion. Are we talking about the heaven up there? Are we talking about the heaven that's going to be a thousand-year kingdom on earth? Are we talking about the heaven that is going to be the new heaven and the new earth? And the answer is yes. Yes. We should be a little bit more specific, but that is what we're going to experience. Those of us who are born again, we're going to experience all of those to some degree. When we get raptured, we're going to go to the heaven that exists now for at least seven years. Then we're going to be with Christ on earth for that thousand years. And then we're going to be with Christ for, for the, on, the new, uh, on the new earth forever and ever and ever. So that's our home. Heaven is our home with Christ, but he may be moving at times. Let me see if I can, I can rephrase this. Where is home? Where is home? Um, you're sitting here. I'll hope to wake you two up. Okay, when you two, I'm talking to you, Mr. Newton. Okay, 
when you talk about with the Portuguese people, do you ever talk about going home and referring to the United States? We're going to go home? You used to, okay, but we used to use that term, and you meant coming to the States, okay? So you're in a foreign land, and you say, I'm going home. And it's this broad idea of the United States. You're at college. Your kids are at college. They're down in, let's pick this area. They're down in Florida, and they say, we're going home to Pennsylvania. Okay, it's a little bit more confined. Or um, you might say, me. I say, okay, I'm going home to see my parents. That means I'm going to Minnesota. But I haven't lived there for, since we've been married, which is how many years, Deb? As many as me. You'll never, you'll never. <laughs> and I say home, I mean Minnesota, but at times I'll say home here. And then other times when I say home, I mean my house. Which one's correct? They're all correct, but they, they have different different values to them, right? So we use that same terminology with heaven. Are we, are we speaking something wrong? No. We just need to clarify what we're talking about. But all of them have some common denominators. That is, that's where my family is. That's where my loved ones are at. Whether it be, you know, and I have loved ones, you have loved ones in Portugal. Okay, but your parents are home in the States. Okay, I have a, a big best family is here. But I have family relatives back in Minnesota. And so, you know, there's family, there's connections. For us, wherever Christ is, that's home. But it might be referring to different places that have a different design at different times of history. But they all have a common factors. We want to talk about those common factors. We want to talk about what will they be like? What will we experience? I think there's another reason why there is so much confusion about it, and I, I need to say this before we get into the, the text, and that is this enemy of ours. He wants to confuse people about heaven. Does he not? Now think this through with me. He used to live there. He used to be there, what, did he not? And then he rebelled against God. He's kicked out. And when he's kicked out, he knows God's plan is to have others allowed into where he's been kicked out of. Have you ever noticed this? That when people at times, not all the time, but sometimes when people get fired for good reasons, they don't necessarily give you all the good reasons. They make it look like it was that company was bad, that store was bad, that you should never go to that store again because they fired me. They did this to me, and they, they sometimes don't give you the full story. Well, Satan's not giving us the full story. Satan is coming, and he's a liar. He speaks a lie. In fact, Revelation says this. This is a very interesting phrase. He empowers his cronies to blaspheme God, blaspheme God's name, and blaspheme God's tabernacle and them who are in heaven. That is, he is going to empower people to speak against God's person, God's people, and God's place. We are told that one of the areas that he is going to criticize and attack is heaven itself that he's going to distort, he's going to, he's going to deny it, he's going to try to get people not to go to that area. So is it any surprise that there are a lot of false teachers out there saying that there is no heaven? Is it a surprise that there is distortions to heaven to try to discourage people from getting involved with it or thinking about it? Is it any surprise to you and me that we would get these false ideas, these false concepts presented to us that heaven is boring to reduce our zeal to go there and to tell others about it? Satan is so clever. And if you hear something long enough, does it impact you? Sure it does. I'll give, you, I'll give you an illustration of it. Wednesday night, Pastor Tony's walking through the foyer, and there are several kids playing on the balcony over here. And they're playing, going up, and some were coming down, and he walked over and got in a conversation with them. Talk about hearing something that impacts. These kids have been hearing things on the news and conversations, and it impacted their playtime. What are you guys doing? Oh, we're playing a game. We're playing keep out. What's keep out? We're Americans. Those guys are Mexicans. This is our country. They're trying to sneak in. And we're trying to keep them out. He said, and he laughed. He said, are you building a wall? Yeah, we have a wall right here. We have a wall. They're not getting in. Okay? And then he said, well, what's happening? Because the ones start walking away. 
Well, they found, they found if they come out in the auditorium and go up the balcony, they can sneak in and get past the wall. It's amazing that they hear it on the news and they play what they hear. It impacted their playtime. Listen, if we hear lies long enough, does it impact us? If we hear discouraging thoughts about heaven long enough, does it discourage us? Yes, it does. And yet we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be duped by the lies. Heaven is real. As you go through scriptures and talk about heaven is an exciting place, as I just focus on John chapter 14, just the six, seven verses here, it is an absolutely amazing place. Paul writes about it and says, for me to live, it's Christ. But he says, to die is even better. Why, why did he say that? Watch what he goes on. For I am in a strait betwixt two things. I have a desire to remain, to be with you, he says, but I have a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. He describes eternity. He describes going to heaven as something far, far better than what he's experiencing in this earth. Uh, let me illustrate this way. You all know, I shared with you, that last spring we bought a different house. We have been living in this house since 1987. We raised our four kids there. We, it, was, it was a nice house. It worked. It was a, you know, a starter home. We didn't have any reason to say, okay, terrible, 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 terrible. Well, I did, but you know, the house was awful. I mean, we raised for the four kids. We had one, bed, one bathroom. It was wonderful. All six of us shared the same bathroom for all those years, especially in the teen years. There was no problems. <sighs> So then we decided, we decided last spring, we just, you know, because the home was built in 1917. The wiring was from 1915, I think. It was just terrible. Okay, and there was a lot of things, and there was always stuff that needed to be done, and we had done some renovations, and they came out very nice, but it was like, okay, the roof is going now. Okay, the basement wall is collapsing now. Okay, this is going. It was one of those old homes. So we decided just to put our, our feelers out that we would just, let's see what the market could do. And so we got a wonderful real, realtor, John, thank you, um, that came in, gave us some advice. We put the thing on the market on a Wednesday, it was sold by Saturday. This, the day of the snowstorm, a year ago this weekend. And it was like, you know what? We just sold our house. We got to buy one. We got to get somewhere. We, uh, yeah. I don't think we can stay in the guest room. We got uh, yeah. to find a place to live. And so we started figuring, you know, well, where do we start? I guess we better figure out what do we want. And so we came up with our list. Deb drew up a list in her mind or on paper, and it had like six things on it. My list had like 6,000 of them uh, that we wanted. And we found a house that we walked in the first time and looked at it and went and saw a couple others and came back and said, this is it. This is the house. It is far better, far better. For the first time in my life, I have a garage. I was teasing staff, I'm thinking of you in the morning when there's frost on the windshield. I just drive out. You guys got to scrape. You got to scrape. Then Pastor Art said the other day when he was scraping, he said, I was thinking about you. I was scraping my window. And he said, and you didn't have to scrape. Well, that day I left the car out overnight. <laughs> and I didn't have a scraper. <laughs> so, far better. Everything's on one floor. Now we have two bathrooms. The kids are gone. Now we each get our own. Yeah. <laughs> far better. Far better. So this, is, this in, in seriousness, some of you have asked, oh, man, don't you miss your house? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Not at all. Why? I got something far better. It is so much far better that we don't miss that other place at all. Do we think about it? Only in this term. Nah, 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 nah. That's it. <laughs> That's it. It is a far better place. That's what he's saying heaven is. Heaven is a far better place for us. If we would just get our, our grips on, what is heaven like? I have 10 statements. I know we're not doing them all this morning. Let me start on just, just three of them. One is this. Heaven, we say, is a real place. It is real he says, I go to a place, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. Here's what we've got. We know that there's other religions that talk about an eternal spot. We know that. We understand that. We've here, we can go, and we can go back into the Gilgamesh records, and they talked about this place with a tree of life. wonder where they got that, huh? 
We can go to the Romans, Romans writings, we talk about Elysium. We can go to the islands in the Pacific and they talk about the island in the sky or they go to the sun. Or we talk about, you know, the great happy hunting grounds. Yes, other religious, other philosophies, they talk about this eternal state. I don't think it's because the Bible is errant. I think it's because they all start at a common point. They all started with what God talked about, a Garden of Eden. That's why so many of these different religions and these different cultures had their floods and had their tree of life because they go back to the reality of what happened in Genesis. But be that as it may, what we have is this. The heaven we're talking about, where Christ is right now, where saints go to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, it is not a myth. It is not a legend. It is a fact. Here's why. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is putting his own credibility on the line. If we don't believe in a heaven, we are calling our Jesus Christ a liar, a trickster, a maker-upper. He is dishonest. He has no integrity. He is the only person who was alive and came to this earth from the heaven to give us eyewitness information about it. He's the only one. He's the one who descended from on high to share with us the glories of the Father. What he speaks is true. It is a real place. I want to expand upon that real place to just try to get you to understand this. It is real like this is real. We consider real substance, something that, has, that takes up time and space. Well, heaven does. Heaven is real in that regard. He uses real objects, not like, oh, there's this mystical floating something. He says there's house, there's mansions, it's a city, it's a country, it's a place, some place something that has space, time involved with it, that has immaterial and material matter involved with it. What I mean by that is that, is this. It's invisible. We can't see it. But that doesn't mean that everything there is non-material. It is so real that God blends matter with spirit into this realm. And it's, just, it's an unusual blend. You see, Jesus Christ is there. Jesus is there in heaven with a real physical body. Well, that's different, isn't it? We think heaven is just this, this foggish thing. No, no. Heaven is a place where real matter exists. Heaven is a place where Enoch is. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Why? He was taken to heaven with, by God with his physical body. Can you think of any others that had their, it's only a couple in history, another character that his physical body was taken to heaven? Yeah, you got Elijah. Elijah taken up with this chariot of fire, he's there in heaven and he's blent together there with this spiritual nature of the angels and God, but there's physical matter there, there is Jesus. I wonder how much of the physical matter there is in heaven when he describes the animals there. I know they've got to be enough physical matter that we're riding horses when we come back. I know this, I know when we go up, we're taking physical matter with us. We're taking these bodies with us if we're raptured. And so in this heaven, it is real like this is real. It's not something mystical. It's not something that is just kind of, ooh, twilight zone. It's not that at all. It is a real place with real substance, with real matter, and yet the spirit and the matter is, is blent and is so close to us that sometimes he, we can see into the one to the other, and it's an amazing thought how real this heaven is. It's real. It's a real place. Number two, it is a remarkable place. It is absolutely remarkable. It is so amazing. It is, we, we talked about this last summer when we were going through the book of Revelation. We were in chapters, in chapter 21, 22, and we described heaven. Now, I know it's remarkable because he's talking to the disciples and he's saying, let not your heart be troubled. Be calmed. You can be quiet down because in this, in this heaven, there are many mansions. Those are permanent dwelling places. That's the word for mansion. Something that is lifelong or eternally long permanent dwelling place. But it is so amazing. It is so spectacular when we start reading about what is he building. Revelation tells us what Jesus is already in involved with constructing, building a place for you. He is building a city, a city whose tar is gold. 
I mean, asphalt. You know, his asphalt is gold. Man, today, could you see what we could do with golden potholes filled up? Just amazing that, he's, you know, that this is going to be solid. There won't be any of those ruts. There won't be. It's gold. It's described that the city has a foundation. Remember? Twelve different stones for the foundation that, that build this thing up. The, street, the city is so brilliant. It's diamonds that you can see through. And it's just, he, John describes it. He says, it is so amazing. The city is like a bride adorned for the wedding. It shines the glory of God. Oh, wait a minute. When people saw Jesus in his glory, what did they do? In, John, in Revelation 1, he was so overwhelmed when he saw Jesus in his glory that he says, I fell down as a dead man. And he says, this city has no need for the sun. Why? The glory of God is in this. It's, it's, it's outshining everything. Well, that makes sense. When the apostle Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was high noon, and he was blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how brilliant this place is? Can you imagine how, how sparkling this place is? Can you imagine how amazing this place is? It's got a tree. The tree is, is spreading over the river that's flowing through the city. And this tree has 12 different fruits, one for each of the different months of the season. There's time. There's time in heaven. And there's going to be a change of fruits. Can you imagine a tree that provides healing for the nations, that it provides enough for everyone, that this tree is changing its color, it's changing its fruit on a, on a monthly basis? Wouldn't you call that an amazing situation to see that? I mean, some of you, have any of you ever gone to Longwood Gardens? Yes? Yes? Is it pretty? Yes? No? Okay, is, is it something you say, wow, when you're there? Okay, good for you. The house we bought, they had dozens of flower beds. I used the, the verb, had. I'm not into plants. I kill plastic plants, okay? So I've never gone to Longwood Gardens. It's never attracted me, okay? Other than I sent groups there at times, and it was like, somebody else take them, because I'm not into those types of things. But if I heard of a tree that could do 12 fruits and changing, my word, I'd like to see that tree. I'd like to see an angel or two. I'd like to see this, this fabulous city. It is remarkable. It is amazing. Now, I've all told you my story of snorkeling. My, my embarrassing story of snorkeling that I had no glasses on because I couldn't see, and I swam over to where Deb was, and we swam together for a while, and she's pulling this way, and I'm pulling that way, and I finally looked over, and it's a bearded guy, okay? <laughs> I told you that. In that same adventure, we're there, and I, and they, you know, I go down, and it didn't mean anything. Snorkeling there in the Keys didn't mean anything. It was like, oh, well, because at that time, I, I didn't have uh, the implants in my eyes, and therefore, if I took off my glasses, without exaggeration, I couldn't see Bob and Joanne sitting here. It was just, I, they said I had five fingers at five feet, you know, the maybe. And so it was just terrible, terrible eyesight. So snorkeling was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. I see blue. Okay. I see a bearded guy and thinks he's my wife, you know. This is really fun. This is, you know, Florida vacation. Yeah, guys, this is a ball. This is like heaven. Mm, I'm enjoying it. Okay. Until... They gave me a pair of goggles that were their highest lens goggles for bring for the prescription goggles. They weren't enough to get real good 2020, but they were enough that all of a sudden I could see from here to like where Deb is. I went down under the water. Wow. There's color down here. There's a fish. Oh, there's a barracuda I didn't see before. Okay. It was a whole world that I had never seen. The others were in the boat saying, oh, isn't this cool, isn't this cool? And they said, what do you think, Dad? Isn't this cool? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. This is great. Until I put those goggles on and came back, then I was like, isn't this cool? Isn't this great? This is fabulous, guys. You got to do it. Dad, we've been down there for an hour. Okay. But you got to come and see what I just saw. That is what it's like for us in heaven. We don't see it. We don't see it. We, don't, we, we are kind of like, okay, we... We don't get it all, 
But when we get the eyesight of it, the loved ones who have gone before us, what do you think they are doing? What do you think they are saying? Wow! This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. We get thrilled, like I said last week, by sunsets. We get thrilled by the desert. We get thrilled by the, by the Grand Canyon out west and here in PA. We get thrilled by, all the, by phenomenal skyscrapers. They're all tainted by sin. The curse has affected all of them. Heaven hasn't been tainted at all. The beauty must be amazing. The structure's phenomenal. And they don't have building code inspectors. Yes! It's an amazing place. And you know the best thing about the house he's preparing for you? You don't have to pay your mortgage on it. You got no taxes. It's amazing. It's a remarkable spot. It is so... Your loved ones who have gone before you are having an experience that is beyond description. They're not sad. They're not bored. It is absolutely phenomenal. It's a place of rest. It's roomy. It's routine. Reunions. Rejoicing. Righteousness. There's one more I added that I'll get to tonight. Relevant. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let me wrap up this morning with this. This place does have restrictions. We'll talk more about the details, but let me point out, this is the most important detail right now that I want you to draw your attention to. It's in John 14. Jump down to verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father, but... What's he mean by that? What's he mean by that? He means very simply this. He is the only one to get you into this heaven. Not your church, not your baptism, not your preacher, not your charity... Not your church attendance, not your good looks, not your American citizenship, if that's what you have. It is not your trivia knowledge. It is not your parents. It is not your somebody else. It is only Jesus. Only Jesus. He is the only one. Why is that? Because Jesus died. He died for your sins and mine. You see, the Bible makes it very clear. It says that in this heaven that's filled with righteousness, nothing enters that creates abomination. No lie shall enter. That means if you've ever told a lie, you can't get in, in and of yourself. And by the way, how many of us have told lies? We all have. And if you say, I never did, you just lied, okay? So what we have is a problem. This heaven, so glorious and glamorous, it's restricted. The only ones who can get in are those who come the right way. The only ones who come the right way are those who come to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I can't afford this place because I'm a sinner. I can't get in because of all my goodness because it's not good enough. Okay, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They smell like toilet paper, dirty socks. He says, that's, that's where we're at. A holy place, a, a wonderful place, but we can't get in unless we have somebody take us in. That somebody is Jesus who died to pay for your sins, to cover them up. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness that Jesus Christ shares with you when you ask him to be your savior. He resurrected so that he could prove to us and the world and that he paid and God accepted his payment. And he ascended to prepare that place for us and comes again in the future to take us to that place. But he is it. it it's like, I got this, this new house, but it's got to be paid for. Somebody's got to pay for it. If I tell them, I don't want to pay for it, I, I'm out of that new house. It's being paid for. But God has prepared me a new house, a better house, far better house, and he's paying for it. He's preparing for it. And he says, you don't have enough to earn your way in. I've got to pay for it. But I won't apply it to your account unless you ask me to forgive all of your sins. You repent, ask me to forgive your sins, and ask me to sign my name to your mortgage, your spiritual mortgage. I'll take care of it. I have enough. I can do it. But you've got to realize it's me and me alone. What happens is when we do that, we get our name written down in his book of life. The book of life that records all who have called upon him, those who are, whose names are not in that book of life, they don't get into heaven. 
In fact, he very clearly says that those whose names are not in the book of life, they are going to be cast into the lake of fire, the opposite of heaven, hell. And it will be forever and ever and ever. He's very clear about this. He's very, very pointed about this. Maybe, maybe this would help illustrate. I take a true story. Written by an individual, her name is Ruthana Metzger, a professional singer. Several years ago, I, she was asked to sing at a wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception was to be held in the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. She and her husband, Roy, were excited about the whole event. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut the satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. The bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by all their guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a bound book greeted all the guests outside the doors. May I have your name, please? I am Ruthana Metzger, and I, this is my husband, Roy. He searched for the M's. I'm sorry, I'm not finding it. Would you spell your name? Ruthana spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. That must be a mistake. I'm the singer for the, for the wedding. I, I sang, and I'm supposed to sing in here. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to another waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, smoked salmon, carved ice sculptures. Is your belly starting to growl right about now? And adjacent to the banquet area, there was an orchestra preparing to perform. The musicians all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruthana and Roy to the service elevator ushered them in, pushed G for the parking garage. After locating their car and driving several miles in total silence, Roy reached over, put his hand on her arm and said, Sweetheart, what happened? When the invitation arrived, I was so busy, I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I would go to the reception without returning the RSVP. She cried and cried because she had missed the most lavish banquet she had ever been invited to. He wrote later, This must be a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Jesus Christ and find their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you sure? Are you sure you're going to be in heaven one day?